Patrick and Tom thought they had escaped the hell of Amityville, but another franchise has gotten its hooks into them. The Amityville Podcast goes to hell. Welcome back to the Amityville Horror Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm Pat. And we're so excited to be talking about Hellraiser now. That's right. Amityville goes to hell, which yes. has not actually happened yet in any of the Amityvilles. Um, no. I guess not. Yeah, we've had portals to hell. We've, we've had, had wells to, to hell. hell. Yeah. But we've never had, like, hell I'm sure. But now nah, mm, we've never nah. gone full hell bound. No. And looking at the, um, the DVD menu, uh, the house kind of does have like the eyes thing going it has that rounded barn style thing yeah we were watching the uh, arrow release of hellraiser that's right nothing but the best <laughs> for our clive barker movies because i love clive barker i Same. love clive barker so goddamn much yeah. uh, so i found clive barker through hellraiser initially sure um it played the first one played at the pairing twin uh here in baltimore the second one was playing within the year. I remember it was a fast enough turnaround yeah, 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 yeah. that I think for a week they even showed both of them one on one screen, one on the other. Ooh. But I think they had pulled the, uh, the first one back out for revival for I, it. I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Like, I don't think it had stuck there for that long. But I remember it being close enough together that, like, I rented the first one with some friends and just had in my head how absolutely gory and terrible. And, and as a kid, you, your imagination runs wild. And, like, I remember being afraid of Friday the 13th until I saw one. I'm like, oh, it's gory, but it's it was so much worse in my head. Yeah. And then I saw this, and it was not worse in my head. I watched it, and I'm like, oh, this is absolutely messed up. Yeah, yeah. Hellraiser, Hellraiser is legit terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say not just because I was raised Catholic. Yeah, well, I was saying, yeah, that's going to definitely inform our conversations, it, I'm sure. It, it, it helps. Um, I for like, I knew of Hellraiser, like, this was back in the period where I was still more, like, terrified of horror movies. I saw Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street when I was about five, mm-hmm. and so I didn't want to watch another horror movie for about ten years, but I was getting back into them, and a buddy of mine uh, lent me the first books of blood so that was the first Clive Barker that I really read and then when uh, I immediately loved the books of blood short stories and started finding everything I could about Clive Barker and then it's like oh he's the Hellraiser he's Hellraiser guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so uh, I picked a I I blind bought they had a two pack VHS of Hellraiser and uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 Mm -hmm. which uh, that's how I first saw these movies and uh, was shocked at how much it felt like the books. Like, mm-hmm. I hadn't read The Hellbound Heart at that point, but, like, in terms of the vibe of the Books of Blood, uh, the Hellraiser movie felt like this is a Clive Barker movie. This is what this guy's books would look like mm-hmm. as a film, which was impressive. Yeah. And by design, because uh, uh, this was uh, Clive Barker's reaction to two prior adaptations of his movies or his books rather yeah. uh, well no one book so first um, and I'm consulting liberally from this big huge book I got at Atomic Books Clive Barker's Dark Worlds by Phil and Sarah Stokes in addition to all sorts of just we've been 
re- reading and watching Clive Barker's yeah, shit for a yeah. week. We know things. But, <laughs> I um, mean, I, uh, I know one of the ones you were mentioning, um, Rawhead Rex. That is based on a story. Yeah. That is or, based or on an existing story. short story. Right. And for the longest time, was absolutely impossible to track down. Yeah. Like you, I mean, if you found a video store that had it, usually there was a elevated fee to rent it this like, was, as a deposit. Oh, this, this is, is like eraser head level, yeah. like rare. This is why it was one of the craziest things. I was living in Connecticut and it was just not the Blockbuster, but it was the actual local, you know, around the corner, hole in the wall video store, whole video galaxy. And they had a hand like 20 or 30 VHSs for sale. And one at one point I'm checking out renting movies and I look over and I see on the spine Rawhead Rex and I'm like, "Wait, there's a movie of Rawhead Rex?" Cuz this is back in I I am old. So this is back in the 90s. The internet was not really a thing yet. So you didn't immediately have the IMDb didn't exist yet. Right. Um so I immediately walked over and was like, from Clive Barker, Rod Rex, I'm like, how is there a movie of this thing? And then I saw, it was only $5, because Mm -hmm. this was the mid-90s, and VHS. And again, if you had, I mean, if eBay had kicked in, which I think wasn't until 96, Mm. um, nowadays that tape would have been worth, would be worth insane amounts, but yeah. Oh, I still have it. Oh, Oh yeah, maybe take a look because that's it's insane. Yeah, like I like I, I've gotten rid of all my VHS except for like a handful, like including that because that I, I figured I'll never see this again, like yeah. on anything. And now I have the uh, the Steelbook Blu-ray edition of Rawhead Rex because it was so stupid a thing to exist that I couldn't not do it. I think uh... it's like it's either Arrow or Vinegar, and um, it was just like I have to own the stupidest ridiculous version of this movie mm-hmm. and it is it's terrible it, it's or it's not terrible it's fun to watch but it is it does not have it does not give me that Barton Fink feeling I do yeah. not get that Clark Barker feeling from that the other movie was a uh, depending on where you find it is either called transformations or metamorphosis i think in some I can't circles remember. that was one i didn't even hear about until years years later yeah this was but. an original script uh like it wasn't a short story or anything before that. It was just uh, he he Clyde Barker was buddies with a an aspiring film producer, and so they're like, "Hey, why don't you write a movie and then I can make the movie?" And that is what happened. Yeah, and people did not like it, including Clive. And mm-hmm. so Clive, the genius that he is, and or just I don't know, I don't want to say he he. I don't want to say egomaniac, but he's definitely a very confident artist. He is, and, um, I mean, let's compare other authors who've directed films. Stephen King. He did that. He did direct that. Well, I'm sorry. We can, there's one school of thought that, could, that says Stephen King directed Maximum Overdrive. There's another school of thought that says Stephen King's body was a vehicle, no pun intended, for the cocaine to direct a movie called Maximum Overdrive. Stephen King himself has come out and sided with the second theory. He has said cocaine directed that movie, but unfortunately the Directors Guild wouldn't let us put that in the credits. <laughs> um, yeah, Maximum Overdrive. 
not the best example of an author no. directing. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The alternate title of Transmutations was Underworld. I, I knew it wasn't that forceful, I'm sorry. Gotcha. But, um, and then we also had uh, Michael Crichton. What, what was he? Was that Future World? Which one? Was, um, or was that I'm Andromeda pretty Strain? sure. Uh, I think he directed Andromeda Strain. I possibly the Great Train Robbery. Uh, I'm double checking that now. But I, I, my my money's against Great Train Robbery. I don't see Sean Connery agreeing to that. Uh, but you'll figure it out in a second. Yeah. What other directors do we or writers do we have that aspired to directing? Um, like Clive had the edge in terms of he's never he, he's never just been a writer like right. he was always writing uh, plays for his for his uh, theater group he was always painting he was always a very visually uh, minded guy and so it was like so when he cobbled together the little bit of money to make uh, Hellraiser it's like okay I know exactly what I, what I want it to look like and so he can just kind of jump to that mm-hmm. which, which uh, helped him out a bunch and then he was doing so well that the uh, was it New World offered to give him more money because mm-hmm. this was like we want to beef up some of this stuff because the things we're seeing are looking good yeah Corman understands mm. what like you know getting the bang for the buck and like oh if you're getting this off of what I've already given you yeah a, co- a couple more bucks yeah, can make this yeah, yeah can sweeten it uh, the hotback Michael Crichton directed the original Westworld oh he did yeah uh, the original Westworld movie is pretty good say yeah I agree uh, and uh, Coma alright uh, he did direct a Great Train Robbery no shit uh, Looker no, which I don't remember Great Train is a good looking movie too. it is yeah, yeah. Good and Creighton did alright um, yeah. he did uh, Runaway the Tom Selleck uh, Kirstie Alley film about the <laughs> oh, spider robots oh I know about I, I know about Gene Simmons <laughs> and his spider robots yeah. uh, physical evidence and then it has him marked as an uncredited director on the 13th Warrior I call shenanigans on that yeah that was that was very John McTiernan. Mm. So, we like John McTiernan. Yeah. I've always said I've never seen a John McTiernan movie I don't like because I have purposely avoided <laughs> watching Rollerball. The Is that the Chris Klein Rollerball? Yeah. Mm. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I, I've seen neither version of Rollerball. Mm. The original's fun. James Gunn? Yeah. 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 Um, but that has nothing to do with Clive Barker. See, yeah. this is what's so great. We don't have to digress into things that we'd rather be talking about because we get to talk about Clive Barker, yeah. which is a subject of but we do, fascination for me. We do get to uh, talk about Alex Garland, novelist uh, turned filmmaker. Ah, fair. Yes. Yeah. And pretty, like, getting... I definitely, like, he's definitely, like, he's a solid director. I'm ride or die at this point. I I want to be, but I, I, I still feel like I'm not just there yet. Uh, I have them all on the shelf, though, yeah. don't get me wrong. I've, I've, I've been a fan of his writing, you know, back through, like, you know, the books, like The Beach and all that, okay. into, like, when he was just screenwriting, you have, you know, 28 Days Later, you have Sunshine, but jumping into, like, Ex Machina and Dead. And Annihilation, yeah. Men, 
Um, I'm a, I'm all in. Dread. Dread. Like so that good. one's that one is a uh, uncredited dire- like uncredited director. Yeah, he probably directed that movie. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm torn on it because it Although looks a lot like a lot of the stuff he does, but then also I don't think he comes up with that slow motion gag on his own. I would be the surprised. Film, definitely the drug, but like how they shot it. I how know. they shot it. I think he may have seen that, and that informed some of his visual decisions on other gotcha, stuff. Gotcha. But again, he like came up with Danny Boyle directing his first couple movies. Yeah. So you learn. Totally. Yeah. It's sort of like Clooney shadowing the Coen brothers, mm. and you know, before and Soderbergh before he directed. Like if yeah. you're working with good people, just pay attention to the, on the job. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. of course. But Clive did not learn from Underworld or Rawhead Rex, and so he said, "I'm going to make my movie." Yeah, and the movie holds up, I think. Like, it well, really we'll, we'll we'll find out in a second because we're still going to watch it. We're still going to watch this movie. Yeah, we're not just going to check it off and say like, "No, no, 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 no." Because no, no. you guys, you you guys would feel cheated if we didn't actually watch the movie and have fresh insights. Mm-hmm. But like like this came a lot like what was fun about uh, in, in this uh, Dark Worlds book it goes into how uh, I'd always wondered about this where what came first the novel or the screenplay or the screenplay or the novel they were written at the same time yeah. like he had outlined apparently he outlined the movie and then he started writing it as a novella. And that helped him figure out the script and what would work in the script and what wouldn't and what would work better as a novel. Okay. So it's kind of like the equivalent of doing like the most absurd dress rehearsal for an entire movie in your head mm-hmm. by d- making a novella and then releasing it. And there are differences. But have you ever read The Hellbound Heart? Yeah, it's been a few years. Sure, sure, sure. I actually literally have the exact same copy. It's the best there. copy with like the the skinned head, but it's made up of the uh, the Cenobites and Frank mm-hmm. in the center, and it's upside yeah, down. Yeah, sitting crisscross applesauce. <sighs> So gross. Yeah. So gross. I have multiple versions. I have, I have, I think, three different versions of that around the apartment. Mm-hmm. And um, I have actually... I had meant to read the Scarlet Gospels that wraps it all up mm-hmm. years ago. I still have my copy, but I was actually, since we were talking about doing this some time back, mm-hmm. I've held back. Oh, uh, you should read that. I was, I was going to read it as good. we get closer to don't, the end of this don't, season. Don't, don't, don't use this. Don't use our glorious podcast as a reason to be lazy. Or don't use your excuse. No, no, lazy. not lazy, but scheduling. No. Sure, sure. I can put different things in priorities around that. It does read very quickly. Yeah. Which is nice. Not worried. Yeah. I would like another book. I mean, I always want another Clive Barker book. He's not... Or actually, supposedly... Like in, okay, so this book, this Dark Worlds book, came out last year. Mm-hmm. And in it, he says he is starting to work on the third book of the art. Oh. Like the actual sequel to the great, great and secret show in Everville. Yeah. The, which... You know, not for nothing, Clive. A, you said it was a trilogy yeah. thirty years ago, and the, we've never got quiddity. Uh, yeah, quiddity. That's yeah. the C. Yeah, the yeah. Bo- the book of the art, which gets you to quiddity, mm. which is the best place ever. Yeah, and a lot of his other stuff has kind of Dark Tower like tethered to it here and there. A like, little kind of Harry Moore. Harry Moore ties into it. References uh, to things. Uh, Ararat, I think. Had I haven't to read any of the Ararat books. Yeah, well, those are 
more like young adult books. Oh sure, but, but like, I'd like they, to at they least didn't read seem the first priority one. when you're like hard into the horror. Side, no, you know? no. Well, as well, like the Thief of Always is a good is a good little uh, young adult story. Yeah. And uh, so at minimum, I wanted to give well, and there was there. It's not like he's making any other books, so it's, right. Yeah, you yeah. should read Ararat, but also I have like the big copy of a Magica that I've never actually finished. So oh, wow. I should do that. <laughs> not a well. short book. Though. No, but no. I feel like it's going to be rewarding if and when I finally yeah. get through it all. Great Secret Show was a so good. giant book too. Uh, it's so good. I love it in the like the uh, IDW or Boom. I think it was it's IDW because yeah. it was uh, Ryle and oh god Gabriel. Uh, yeah, Rodriguez. Yes. Yeah, and I, I love how they like they. All the designs are, you know, Rodriguez, but when it gets to ha- Harry Demore's cameo, it's very distinctly Scott Bakula. Yeah. Because Scott Bakula. I, yeah. He could still play Harry. He mm-hmm. could play, like, older, somehow beady-eyed Harry. Yeah. He's got some real beady eyes right now. But we still love him. Love, like, Lord of Illusions is still the best movie. But in terms of first films... Hellraiser, I think, is impressive. As yeah, as a directorial debut, and not even like well, they came from music videos and directed in sure. you know television episodes mm-hmm. and all that. Like this is straight out just like um, you're making a movie for the first time, dude. Yeah, but like, and don't get me wrong, you see the budget. Like yeah. not not as a, like a criticism, but you can tell this is on a budget but the clarity of the designs of the characters the the the, comp- the shot composition mm. everything looks that's, interesting that's a huge part is his he has a painter's eye on his composition yeah mm-hmm. uh, because he's I mean even after he stopped doing so much writing he got real heavy into doing a lot of painting oh, and God, photography yeah. mm-hmm. and so, yeah he's he's had a visual sense for being a wordsmith yeah and the subject matter, like the like, it, it's a tragedy, and we'll get into more of it as the series, as like the series progresses. How just the drop in quality of the films, uh, because the first one is such a a, a, a uh, an adult grown up tale. Like mm-hmm. our characters are our, our two main care our three main characters, uh, like Larry, uh, Frank, and Julia, are middle aged. Yeah, uh, Kirsty becomes the main that like our hair our she kind of swoops in at the end we'll, we'll get into it we'll get yeah. into it later but uh it's not about t- it was a horror movie in the in the late 80s like post slasher movie boom that was not about kids yeah. And it was not about, you know, uh, accidentally invoking a curse or going on to an ancient tribal land. This movie is about a woman who is frustrated with her life to the point where she's going to do something horrendously dumb mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. And it's going to be great. And in the middle of all of this are just horrible, horrible images. Like, yeah. Pinhead's on the cover. You know why Pinhead's on the cover? This is the cleanest thing we can show mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. It, it was like, in, um, if only because I have the poster there all the time. I loved in the commercials for Slither, like one of the lines they would let in the, the, the commercials would be, don't let them in your mouth. Because that's as, as wholesome as we're going to get in this movie. Because yeah. everything's just going to be gross and terrible. But yeah. 
I don't think we need to introduce it anymore. Let's just yeah, let's it. let's watch Hellraiser and come back with more thoughts on the other side. Wow, we're we're early in the franchise. We know we're gonna like. I know we're gonna like this movie. Yeah. I have a I have a sneaking suspicion we're gonna like this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to our resale value. <laughs> what? Oh, I mean, no, we're, 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 we're rewatching it already. No, but it's like we can't. We gotta not interrupt. We can't interfere with the process, or else Pinhead would be. An, we've already been angry. We've we we had seen Texas Chainsaw. It's true. Yeah, it's we have to get on familiar roads before we can break new ground and mix metaphors as willy nilly as we please. Okay. All right. See you in a second. My notes are, my, my legal pad looks like Amy Comey Barrett's. It's like, no notes, because I just know this movie mm-hmm. so very, very thoroughly. But I love it so much! Oh, man, does right. it ever... It doesn't get old. No, still enjoy it. Ah. I'd say yeah. probably over the years more than I did initially, because... We're grown-ups now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like this is like like definitely feeling the adult horror aspect mm-hmm. of it, like that we were talking about it before, but uh, also just kind of like it, it's funky how it, it doesn't like espouse the three act structure or like normal character arcs, but it isn't it isn't made or it isn't telling the story in the normal horror movie or even movie way. No, it's. Um and I don't think we have to go in order for this one terribly. No, no, no. Like, we can jump around. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Hellraiser, people, please, yeah, don't listen. One. Just go Go ahead. watch it. Just go yeah. watch it. It's on Shudder, among other things, probably. But we had discussions through the course of watching this about the nature of antagonist, protagonist, hero, villain, and that they don't necessarily always have to line up the traditional ways. Yes. Like, this movie does not really have a hero. Like, we, we're rooting for Kirsty to get out of the house mm-hmm. at the end of the but movie. Final girl, which is not necessarily hero. Yeah, because our protagonist is Julia Cotton throughout the entire film. Played. Well, throughout 80% of the film. Throughout 80%. Well, yeah. I mean, she's, does Kirsty become the protagonist? That's the thing is, there's a handoff of guess the is. protagonist, the villain is the protagonist for 80%, and then the yeah. final girl becomes the protagonist for the last 20%. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, yeah, you're, who we've been following for almost the whole movie gets killed by the villain, and then the... the main male lead gets killed off camera and you don't even you're not explicitly told that for at least five minutes no so even if one can assume yeah so there's a point where we're kind of in a vacuum of we don't really have any definition to who's who except this is who's left he's evil she's not yeah I like that like we don't know who's who we just know who's left yeah I like that could work for a thing I could put that in the back pocket for a story exactly Uh, but yeah uh, it ends with the damsel in distress being arguably the lead although she's barely in the first chunk of the movie for real Kirsty yeah uh, played by Ashley Lawrence Mm mm-hmm but the whole movie is about uh, Claire Higgins as Julia trying to uh, get the best 
lay of her life back to life. Yeah. I mean, there are worse reasons. But sometimes dead is better. Sometimes dead is better. There are definitely better reasons. So we open with the uh, incredible score by Christopher Young, which was uh, the uh, replacement score. Uh, I was sh- I was playing for Patrick while we were off uh, recorder that uh, Clive Barker had wanted his uh, the uh, the industrial band Coil to do the music for the film, and I played him some excerpts. You can find them on YouTube, and there was, like, a Coil put out, like, a big unreleased uh, or, like, anthology type of mm-hmm. thing that had, this like, a bunch of the tracks that they would have used for the Hellraiser movie, and mm-hmm. they are weird. Yeah. <laughs> Very synthy. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. It's definitely... It would be good music for a horror movie. I don't know if it, about this one, but I'm not... That's just because I'm not used to hearing it over this. Well, and also, like, the Christopher Young score really sets the... T- like, sets the tone. It has kind of an elevated, classier vibe, like, right mm-hmm. off of the bat with this full orchestral theme. Well, it's... It's music written to the movie, whereas the Coil stuff sounded more like they made tracks to be used in the movie. That's fair. Yeah, there's, like... It's it's the difference between how a lot of modern scores are done, where they just make sweeping, you know, Mm. arcs and then edit it as needed. Yeah. Compared to, like, like... the Tron Legacy score from Daft Punk, they specifically would rewatch every edit of the movie and adjust the music accordingly to make sure the timing was right and the tone was right, you know, shot to shot and scene for scene. They were scoring to what to the specific image. Yeah. And you definitely get that in this movie as well. Yeah. Like it the themes from like the opening credits have all of the themes and you feel them repeating and building the dread in, mm-hmm. in this house throughout the whole movie, which just mm. Christopher Young. Amazing then, amazing now. Like yeah. I, I, I was pleased to see like I was watching something recently and it's like, oh Christopher Young did the music for this. This is gonna be awesome now. Yeah. But, so, we have the opening credits, and then we cut to Frank in what appears to be something like a Turkish bazaar, mm-hmm. trying to purchase the box with two stacks of a lot of money and the dirtiest fingernails you've ever seen. Like, eh, in the running. I mean, he's got, like, they're really overgrown, and there's, it's just, they're black underneath yeah. the fingernails. It's just black. Yeah, not just dirt, but like that's blood clot under the fingernails. Oh, that's like, God, so yeah, that's somebody rotting from the inside. Yeah, and then we cut to Frank in uh, what we would later find out is the attic of his uh, mother's home, and he's got his candles and he's got his Le Marchand uh, box, and he's ready to open it up. And man, unfortunately for him, it works. Yeah. Uh, he gets ripped apart in ways that defy biology, including I, I, his I, I, eyes being a part of the flesh of his face. Yeah, that's eh, fine. It's yeah. not like they were blinking, right? <laughs> but the you know eyeballs are a gelatinous. Yeah, and they're all they're their whole separate thing. Yes, but, but it this, is great. It, we're not in this for realism. No, I, I still love that shot where like uh, it's, it's Pinhead, right? Is uh, picking up the pieces of Frank's face, or is it the female Cenobite? I don't remember. It might be the female Cenobite is picking up the pieces of Frank's face and putting them together like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Love it. 
But then they close up the box and everything disappears, and we're introduced to Larry and Julia Cotton, who are not doing well in their marriage, mainly because you can't go back to Larry when you've had Frank. Mm -hmm. And Larry never knew about the Frank thing, did he? I I would assume not. Yeah. Because he is... Delir- just oblivious to everything happening in this movie. Yeah, Larry's cute. new wife, uh, Julia, newish. They've been together yeah. for a little. They've been together for a little bit. Yeah, second wife. Second wife, but yeah. yeah. Um, he yeah he married her. Well, she had had an, a, a relationship with Frank, or no, she met Frank pretty much right after their wedding because he showed up to pay his respects, met her at the door, and then they bang on the wedding dress. Uh, I think it's before the wedding. It's before the wedding? Okay. but it's, Yeah, it, well, in the second one, you see flashbacks. He's in the wedding party. Right, right, So right. that's why. Yeah. That's the other gotcha. reason. He's like, he's. I'm here for the wedding. Um, listeners at home, you have to give, you have to understand, the, we know the movie back and forth. The problem we're running into is we've talked about the movie just in general and to each other so many times that going over the synopsis is just a little kind of yeah do we have to explain this again and we have to remember what we talked about while we were watching it and our notes are thin because we're like oh we got this we got this we do got this what are you talking about so uh well i love that so the movie is was originally supposed to be in England, and because it's filmed in England, because it's what they're so convincing. Yes, uh, but the New World Pictures people wanted it to be in America, and also they want didn't want to have to explain why like Larry has an American accent because you know you could never. Well, I, I think the issue was like Larry. Larry has an American accent, but Frank does not, was the thing. The actor, Sean Chapman, could not do an American accent. I'm pretty sure he's dubbed over by a completely separate actor. I believe so, yeah. In this and in the second film. And so we're kind of, they're saying that they're in Brooklyn, and every exterior is just London. Like, it's painful. The, the old London. countryside cottages of Brooklyn. Of Brooklyn. You Look, see- I don't care how many, like, you know, cyberpunk, velocipede, you know, monocle-wearing people you see wandering, you know, uh, just Brooklyn in general. Sure, sure. Um, it's not that retro. Nobody has built these little stone cottages. No, 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 no. Like this wouldn't these wouldn't even fit in Portland. Right. Like, this is how British they are. Yeah. Um, but and, and like I love like the big sweeping shot of Ashley Lawrence walking on the Thames. Like it's just clearly the Thames. Yeah. Like the, if you've watched any British British gangster movie, this is just England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've watched any movies set in or near New York, mm. it's a pretty specific skyline. Yeah. Like, you can see buildings. Yes. That's a huge part of their skyline. There are buildings. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. You're right. And, <laughs> and when we were seeing the skyline here, uh, it reminds me of uh, Rumble in the Bronx, where you're up in the Bronx, and you can see those giant mountains just north of the Bronx. Where did they film Rumble? Vancouver. Oh, awesome. awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Uh, I, I, geography replacement is always such a joy. Well, yeah, like so many things, like, uh, what's the word? 
first one, like uh, Short Circuit Two, is just like it's supposed to be New York, but like the street signs are all Canadian and mm-hmm. everything. It's just painful, yeah. but anyway. I, yeah. And like the ways the uh, streets like dip, like the hills running through parts of New York. Sure. No. Yeah. No, we don't have that. No. That's not a thing. No, no, it is not. But yeah. So, Ashley Lawrence and. Uh, Andrew Robinson are the Americans, and everybody else is uh, either dubbed or not. And it's kind of fun because, like, Julia is still uh, speaking uh, is English. Um, uh, Frank is dubbed by an American guy, and like Kirsty's boyfriend and every other person is overdubbed with an American voice. But like, or there's a lot of background players, like some of the fellas that Julie brings home. They're all still English. They're all still English, and some of them seem like they might be trying to hide it. Okay. They're like the Ish. the guy who looks like he was in a new wave band. Yeah. Um, he was definitely, or he may have been dubbed. No, I, I mean, I, that felt like a natural British accent mm-hmm. being covered up. Okay. Yeah. He did look like he was in a new wave band. Yeah. But so they move into this uh, lovely British house in Brooklyn. And uh, in fairly short order, Larry cuts his hand like almost down to the tendons mm-hmm. and ends up bleeding in, yeah. the, in the attic room where Frank was eviscerated by the Cenobites. Yeah. Now he rips his hand open, the nail penetrating his hand mm-hmm. while there's a flashback of Frank and Julie having the sex on the wedding dress. On the wedding dress. Yeah. Scumbags. Just terrible. Mm-hmm. Just bad people. And these are our these are our main characters. Yeah, again, not the Cenobites. Cenobites are and featuring. Yeah, I love like I, I love like watching it this time. I, I was impressed by Clive's use of like the Jaws sort of logic in terms of when your character when your monsters appear on screen because like you get a brief glimpse of the Cenobites right at the beginning, and uh, but then they disappear and they don't show up until twenty minutes to the end of the movie, mm-hmm. and they're all over those last twenty minutes. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but like. The tease of that. But that's the thing. The last 20 minutes of the movie, it's... Different. It's the Cenobites and it's Kirsty, and not Julie and... Frank. Frank uh, well, no, uh, Frank, not Julie and Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who have been our leads for the rest of the movie. Like, our leads for this movie are dead, and we've got 20 minutes to round it out with, again... The people who are left. Yes. It's a weird turn, and it should... That kind of pivot should break a movie. It should. It doesn't, though. It doesn't. And I will have a question about that later, but we're still doing this. Okay. Um, or, no, ask it now. Yeah, why not? Um, we're here. Uh, I often watch Hellraiser 1 and 2 together as one big movie. Right. Do you feel that this movie stands on its own, or having seen number two, do you think there are parts of this that are missing without the second movie? I think the second one definitely fills in some things, but I think that this worked for what it was going for. This, mm-hmm. under its own premise, before trying to figure out how to expand and franchise it, yeah. it operates under its own logic. It feels complete. Um, that the narrative 
skips you again from a completely one to one cast to another. Yeah, since it basically does that hard direct that. I think that's why the Cenobites took off as the focal character, because they're the only characters that are at the beginning and the end of the movie. Okay. So by them being the bookends, Mm. I know uh, Barker was very surprised that they were the ones that took off. I'm sorry, you made the most visually interesting characters that you barely show. The audience feels teased. It's the Boba Fett I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, yeah, they open and close the movie... Yeah, that's what people are going to lock on to. He wanted oh, Julie to be the villain of the series. He wanted a female horror villain. Yes. He wanted a female Freddy, Jason, all this. And he was hoping it was going to be Julie, and they tried. Well, behind the scenes stuff, in addition to just Pinhead and the Cenobites being just too striking to not be the focal point of it. Claire Higgins apparently was also not interested in being the queen, like the evil queen of the Hellraiser movie. Right. So, yeah. Like she comes back for the second one, and you can actually see the deleted, the alternate ending where uh, she pops up at yeah. the end of it. But she apparently was just not that interested in it, which is fair. Right. But it also, like... It would have been cool. It would have been cool, but it would have also been dragging the franchise, kicking and screaming towards it, mm. because people were locked on to... Pinhead. Pinhead. Company. That was what people wanted to see. And even, like, the fourth movie, they try to introduce alternate female villains yeah. to try and get that idea going, but, like, he, he didn't want it to be the Pinhead series. He wanted it to be female villain. Yeah. Which is reflected in the film. Yeah. And he doesn't necessarily, you know, get the female voice entirely right. I mean... There's a lot of places where just people don't sound like how people talk. There is a, a, a bunch of... I, I, I am I, I'm a novel or I am a short story writer and a novelist and you know mm-hmm. hearing people say the dialogue I write yeah maybe a thing sometimes words look better on paper because they flow mentally how they read mm-hmm. the angles of letters can affect the tone of a word looking at it rather than hearing it um, yeah, it's a weird, like, synesthesia thing, I think, but... Could be. Yeah, but yeah, no, some dialogue absolutely works so much better on the page and sucks out loud. Well, <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh-huh. Uh, I also think, like, this one definitely can stand as its own movie. Oh, it's yeah. It's just, like, personal preference. I like to watch the two of them as one big movie. Yeah. And uh, Clive Barker definitely intended this to be a standalone story. That's why the ending is as conclusive as it is with the uh, all the pinhead, all, all the Cenobites being sent back, the house is destroyed, the dragon, the dragon skeleton, or the skeleton dragon, however you prefer, uh, takes the box away, and then it all kind of zooms out, mm-hmm. and the box is being uh, prepared to be sold to some other guy for another story. Like, yeah. on board for the ideas of more stories in this universe, mm-hmm. but the cottons were going to be done. Right. And for some strange reason, I remember when I first saw it, it gave me weird echoes of Time Bandit's ending. 
Uh, yeah. Well, it's just I like mean, pull off to the sky, but the map is still out there. Yeah. The and like, also goofy special effect that well, looks yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, and, it's uh, like are you trying to be as campy as you are, or is it just kind of a happy side effect? Yeah. The time bandits. I gotta say, they had to intend. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Time Bandits. God, that's a great movie. Uh, love Time Bandits. But anyway. Um, Not a franchise, so sadly. No, but one can, can... Well, Terry Gilliam's kind of a franchise. Yeah. We'll see down the road once we've <laughs> sequeled ourselves out. Those, those first six movies I hold above almost everything else. Yeah. Like, first six, starting with Time Bandits. I finally got around to Jabberwocky, and it is an interesting film. It is a noble first effort. It is a great first effort. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely a first effort. Yep. <laughs> but you see all the little, like the ingredients, the ideas that will work so much better once we get a yeah. bit more experience. Yeah. <sighs> Derek Gilliam. We need to get Terry Gilliam to direct a Hellraiser. Can you imagine? Ter- Can you imagine if Terry Gilliam directed Hellraiser two? What huh. hell would have looked like? That could be a whole side conversation that we can come back to another time of... Like when we do Hellraiser 2. Yeah, but like just <laughs> perfect world side directing. Oh. Like instead of recast the role mm. um, or the meme going around as of when we're recording this, uh, take 10 songs that you want to hear covered by 10 bands time travel as an option. So like if you wanted to hear... Frank Sinatra cover the Sex Pistols mm. instead of, you know, the other way around. Um, or. Interesting. Yeah. Having uh, Parliament Funkadelic playing uh, Tongue Thumping. <laughs> There's another. I mean, George Clinton's still alive. Right, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. you can pick artists or groups in their prime yeah, and yeah, yeah. say, like, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's a fun thought experiment. Oh, no, so, like, I, this, like, like picking directors and time stream change. Who, oh, yeah. Oh, well, I always loved the idea of, even though it would never have interested them, uh, what would the Coen brothers have done with the Superman movie? Oh, wow. Like, think Hudsucker Proxy Coen brothers mm-hmm. doing the new... Uh, and new honestly, movie. go back to the roots of a lot of the Jewish immigrant, like, nature of Superman as a character. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Oh, it's a yeah. solid idea. It's yeah. just... I Even don't. just, like, um, them doing a Cavalier and Clay would have been interesting. That would have been great. Yeah. But, oh, wow. Terry Gilliam doing a Hellraiser, though. That'd be fantastic. I still want to find a copy of the Peter Jackson Elm Street script. Fair. That would have been fun. Yeah. But anyway, so, Frank has erupted, has grown out of the floor in... Just, like, it's kind of crazy. Like, everybody remembers, like, and, and the people that have a passing understanding of Hellraiser will always know about Pinhead, but only people watching Hellraiser will know the exquisite disgust of watching Frank grow himself out of the mm-hmm. floor. His goopy stems popping up out of the floor and Ugh. poop around him and goopy fingers. Like and, the spinal column and, plugging into yeah. the brain and, and everything. Slimy cheeks and... Ugh. Goopy spine and a lot of goop and slime. Slime and goop. Yep. Oof. It's... And as disgusting and hobbled as he is, because at this point he can't stand up straight, the dick was that good that when Julia finds out that it is Frank, she is willing to murder people to help him come back That's all true. the way. Yeah. 
Like, she could have just pieced out. Mm-hmm. She'd been like, like, you're a pile of goo. I don't know mm-hmm. what else is going to happen, but if yeah. I leave right now, I'm fine. For real. Hey, Larry, like, why don't we kill this thing that's up in the attic? It mm-hmm. says it's your brother. That only makes it more correct that we should murder him. Right. Here is a, here's a pile of goop and a few bones. We could just step on him. We could just step on him right now. Yeah. We could burn the house on him. We could just open the window. That's probably not going to do him well. I, he looks very like prone to pneumonia. Yeah. And it's and these Brooklyn winners. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, they're fierce. Well, they used to be back in the 80s. Back in the it's 80s. It snowed. Oh, God. Sorry. I mean, it so, snowed on Saturday. Sort uh, of. That's for what like I a second. Yeah. It didn't matter. I saw one die. tweet about the reception being fuzzy outside. <laughs> This is not good. No. But anyway. So, Julia starts picking up a surprising amount of British men in Brooklyn singles bars. And yeah. Well, uh, they're confused by the whole Williamsburg name. Eh, fair, 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 fair. And, man, she's such a jerk to these guys. Like, because, mm-hmm. like, she is bringing them home with the presumption of, you know, midday hookups. Right. And, you know, she's not going through with it. But, like... She really, like, is sarcastic as hell to them the entire time and just, like, borderline making fun of them mm-hmm. for thinking that they're going to have sex with her, yeah. even though that is exactly what she has told them that's going to happen when they go home. Yeah. And then it's just, like, it's just short of her going, I can't believe the look on your face when I bashed in your head with the hammer. Right. It's like you didn't see this coming at all. Yeah. And this is in the mid-80s when we were being taught to be safer about sex and casual flings mm-hmm. and like that metaphor was not subtle no yeah sex bad yeah <laughs> 80s horror Se- sex with random people is bad get to know the person even yeah, then sex. even then sex is not to be trusted necessarily in 80s horror movies that's true even with the boyfriend or whatever because er, Jason is there Jason is there or vampires vampires mm. look at the timing of the massive wave of vampire movies in the 80s yeah. and how massive, they relate. Massive wave? Uh, from 85 forward, we've had a huge chunk of them. I mean, there there's a bunch of memorable ones, but it's not like the zombie wave of movies. I would say, I would go back and be surprised. Fair enough. Um, and in part because that was the easiest one-to-one metaphor for people to talk about AIDS. Mm, fair. I mean, watch, like, Lost Boys and Fright Night are definitely reactions to the AIDS crisis. Sure. Um, but, like, so much, yes, yeah, so many vampire movies. Oh, no. well, my, like, I, you have the cheeky I, comedies, Once Bitten, my, you know, yeah. My Best Friend's a Vampire, yeah. Rockula. Um, Rockula. Yeah. <laughs> Vamp. Vamp. Uh, the Hunger. Mm-hmm. And the hunger even just slightly predates predates AIDS, but uh, well, predates def- the discovery. We'll go predates on. the official declaration, yeah. but there were yeah, there was definitely rumors mm-hmm. through the scenes. So of, totally yeah. Um, plus, there was just the Reagan and you know puritanical. Mm-hmm. Bullshit going over. Anywho, Hellraiser. Well, I but, mean, but a I lot mean, of this does but tie I, in because uh, of yeah. Clive Barker's place, especially in the British gay clubbing scene mm-hmm. and the S and M scenes. Yeah, 
It's like you, you got to give them credit for coming up with a new metaphor. It's just like, yeah, sure, vampires, werewolves. How about S and M zombies from Beyond the Grave? Mm-hmm. With pins in their heads. Oh yeah. God! All those, the, all the uh, Cenobites look amazing yeah. in this movie. Like the makeup holds up yeah. to this day. And honestly, like a lot of proper like industry dom, you know, doms and whatnot, mm-hmm. the Cenobites are there to punish and give pleasure. <laughs> But they're, again, not the moral judges of this situation. No. They're just there with this handy box that lets you, like, go up on no. chains. You called. We came. Yeah. We We're hourly, so come on now. Let's do this. Yeah. Should or get off the pike? Do. All right. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. It's kind of fun, like, in the novella that gets into a little more conversation between uh, Kirsty and the Cenobite that is coming to claim her. Uh, it's not necessarily Pinhead. It's not... The Cenobite's not really described in the novella. Yeah, I know... Uh, um, uh, Pinhead does appear. Yeah, but uh, is it called the priest, I believe, right? No! Oh, it, no, it's... It yeah, no. Uh, Pinhead is referred to as a hell priest, but, like, um, the Cenobite... They, they don't... I don't think Clive even describes it. Like, well, it's, like I, that's what I meant to say yeah. was that the priest was, or the how Pinhead had been described in the book. Yeah. Well, yeah, Pinhead describes as a priest. Like in, in the first appearance, uh, like when Frank calls him at the beginning of the novella, either there's one referred to as the engineer. Okay. Uh, gotcha. I think like you might be uh, conflating them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I thought uh, that the engineer was always supposed to be. Uh, I think they called him Butterball. No, no, all right. No, because like, uh, like, well, in the movie, the big monster thing is called the engineer. Oh, that's uh, okay. The Mount yeah. of Madness style one. Yeah, exactly. And um, which, yeah, um, there's one of the creatures when she first open when Kirsty first opens the box, is this thing being pushed on a dolly down a long hallway, yeah. but it's in flickering shadows and lights and. If you've seen In the Mouth of Madness, Carpenter definitely got some inspiration from this. Yeah. Like, the way it's lit, the way it moves, like, the whole thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Even, like, the slats in the walls as the... There's a lot of Hellraiser to... In the Mouth of Madness, too. Yeah, here we go. There's a soft phosphorescence at the end of the bed, and in its fold of figure, the condition of its flesh beggared her imagination, the hooks, the scars, yet its voice when it spoke was not that of a creature in pain. And uh, Clive goes out of his way to not identify... The uh, like the, even the gender. Oh no, he, that was. I think that was very um, important for him. Um, so, but like that Cenobite explains to Kirsty, it's like, oh, you didn't know what the box was. Well, this has happened before. I can't go home alone. So, mm-hmm. come on, yeah. <laughs> let's do this. And even <laughs> then, like the other Cenobites, are like maybe we just want you instead anyway. And like she's yeah. trying to cut the deal of, hey. Frank got away from you. I know where he is. Let's go get him. And it is Pinhead that's like, I want to... Oh, yeah, no, this motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, like, the the female Cenobite is like, maybe we prefer you to Frank. And then... I want him to... I want him... We we settle old business first Uh before we get to new business. (laughs) Yeah. Let's clear the docket before midnight. Old business... New business is new business, and we don't discuss new business until... Next quarter. <laughs> Next quarter. 
I almost jumped over to the kids in the hall. And then the horse. And then the horse. Yeah. But, um, so, jumping around a bit. <laughs> As we... I mean, you've seen... If you you have to have seen Hellraiser. I, I refuse to believe that if you're listening to this, you haven't seen Hellraiser. Yeah, like most of our... In, actually, this would probably be our most insightful one because we actually come to this with knowledge. Yeah. Um, our more ludicrous and reactionary episodes will be as we get into some of the ones we've seen less or at all. Yeah. Five, five, five through uh, the remaining are going to be exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing trending in the 80s besides, um, you know, moral panic mm-hmm. was the Rubik's Cube. Do you believe that the Rubik's Cube was an inspiration? Now, it was released originally in the 70s, but definitely hit popularity when Ideal took over in 1980. Mm -hmm. Uh, By 1983, there was a Saturday morning cartoon, Rubik the Amazing Cube. Oh, I remember that. Uh Uh-huh. It was terrifying. I would just say terrible, but sure. But, I mean, both. Um, That little creature. But... You now have this sentient puzzle box. Mm-hmm. Do you think Clive might have been um, enjoying an evening? I will say I don't know what his uh, imbibes might be, but you are really struggling tonight. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't want to say that he you know did any particular drugs or not. I'm just saying. Yeah, my words fail bad, dude. <laughs> Uh, Oh, definitely. Um, Like, it's funny. The description of the box in the book is markedly different. Like, in the 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 book, and I promise this is not just going to be, but in the book. uh, I mean, after this movie, we're off the book, so let's get it out of the way. It's our chance to talk. It's it's still referred to as the Le Marchand configuration, and then later these names would be separated between the Lament configuration and Le Marchand's box. But... um, Uh, it's the same thing every time they refer to it, but it's a, a much more straightforward Chinese puzzle box that's supposed to be high gloss black on all sides, like to the point where you don't you can't see any mechanisms or cracks or anything. Or seams or yeah. exactly, and um, uh, the point is to pull the pieces of the box apart, and once you get all of the pieces of the box apart, it open it unlocks hell. And right. uh, everything comes in, as opposed to the, the the movie box is much more of a cartoon sort of ma- right. magic box where, mm-hmm. like, it is perpetually having different mechanisms that mm-hmm. none of the all of these could not fit into yeah. like the little square. Elements are motorized, so when you push this button, this sequence happens to mm-hmm. move into this. So it's yeah. yeah, almost more finding an algorithm than it is yeah, yeah solving solving it yeah, um, and also. It wants to be solved. It yeah. is semi-sentient. That's like all, like kind of the yeah. fun thing. Like it's sentient, like the the one ring is sentient, where it's like it kind of wants things, and but it can't really do things mm-hmm. on its own. But it's, um, I'd kind of gotten the vibe that it's supposed to be inherent curiosity. Yes, and that the inherent curiosity, obviously, again plays over to the sexual curiosity of oh, yeah. the air quote deviant culture of the 80s. Oh, you mean how, like, if you find that one perfect button in the box, it opens up hell? Right. But I'm saying, like, people. Laugh, damn you! <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, there's people who were getting, you know, college curious, as they, I guess, called it. Sure, sure. Or, you know, um, 
how many confirmed bachelors may have taken the puzzle box home. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was basically the danger of the unknown. And, oh, definitely. Yeah. Which, these are all things that also get fairly lost in the future films. Uh, yeah. But yeah. mercifully, we're not there just yet. So we're going to... We're, we've got some internal logic, at least for the next four films, I think. Right. And then things get a little kerfluey. Yeah. But we'll get to them that later. So... Mm-hmm. Julia has okay. Go. Oh, also, just one more thing on the Rubik's Cube thing. Um, Kirstie's fella at the end of the movie, who's Steve. Steve, cool. Um, pretty forgettable character. What? But he His is shirt weird. at the end is amazing, and a very Rubik's Cubey shirt. It's a lot of squares, and most of the squares are patterned yeah. off of the colors on a Rubik's Cube. That's fair. So yeah, what a shirt. It's a hell of a thing. He would wear <laughs> that, though. I hate you. Yeah. See that? No, no. He, yeah. But at least I reacted. This is true. <laughs> you just... You Look, just... Speaking of puzzle boxes, before we watched the movie, I had a chicken mm-hmm. box from Hip Hop mm-hmm. Fish and Chicken. Uh, <laughs> chicken side, because Fish and I don't get along. And I, ha- I hit the itis somewhere in the middle <laughs> of watching this. So, yeah. Um, Which is different from Julia's Gotta Have It itis. Go on. She's got to have it. Oh, well, got to have it. I decided. Yeah. Right. I thought it was self-explanatory. It's like we don't connect anymore. <laughs> I just, I feel like I'm losing. Uh, I just, I, I, I definitely am like brain floaty because I was like, she's got to have it. Was that 85 or 86? Did oh she, my God. Was there a theater playing Hellraiser and she's got to have it at the same time? Got to have it. I just. <laughs> That'd be a heck of a double feature, wouldn't it? She's got to have it. That's a Spike Lee joint. Yeah. Uh, I have not seen that one. Mm. Mm. Sorry. Mm. That's... Is that, no, that was later. That was yeah. later, because that was... Yeah, that was the 90s. Yeah. No, this would have been out around the same time as, I think, School Days, probably. Mm. Also an interesting crossover. Yeah. <laughs> I think Larry Fishburne would have held his own against Pinhead. Yeah. But anyway, um, so Julia has gotten gotten Frank enough guys that he is, you know, standing up and looking better. He's got more good. He's got more flesh on him, but mm-hmm. also, you know, the concomitant goo. Yeah, the flesh so to goo ratio is much more flesh than goo now. Yeah, but, and yeah. he's got like some blood on the edges of things again. Yeah. He's got bones still peeking through the muscle. Oh, God, and I just I love the scene of when he explains the backstory of everything to Julia, and it's just it's just a guy wearing a button down shirt and trousers with no skin having a cigarette. Yeah. Because, like, and all of these shots are, like, so many of these shots are in uh, broad daylight or just harsh yeah. uh, lighting. Not harsh lighting, but, like, full lighting. Stark, we're not hiding. Stark, stark and theatric. Yeah. We're not hiding anything. We're, like, there, there's a confidence in the makeup, which is completely deserved, but also confidence in presenting this bizarre, macabre image. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, because the visual grotesquerie is a is always second fiddle to how crazy and evil Frank and Julia are. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the fact that he has no skin is the least of what makes him dangerous. Yeah, it's awesome. 
Yeah. It's like you don't need for him to be skinless to realize everything in this everything in this frame I'm looking at right now is terrifying. Yeah. So the fact that you throw the shirt and the cigarette in to be like, oh, yeah, this is perfectly normal. <laughs> the fuck am I doing with my life? And that's a, a vibe that's very present in all of Clive's work. Uh regardless of how uh, fantastical the premises get, mm-hmm. the presence of the otherworldly in the day-to-day. Like, yeah. it just, you go down the wrong back alley, and you'll see something. It may not try to kill you or anything, mm-hmm. but you will see that the world is bigger than what you thought yeah. it was a minute ago. And that in that world, there are people who are completely used to and or just flat-out sick of it. Yeah. Like, this is, this is their day-to-day. Like, they've got a case of the Mondays is this <laughs> cosmic horror. Is, I had to find a box that opens up the door to hell. Yeah. As it turns out, I did everything in the Kama Sutra and I'm still bored. Mm-hmm. So now, hooks with chains. The Kamikaze Sutra, uh, the Kamakam Sutra, the, there's all sorts of variants out yeah. there. The Krav Magra Sutra. Wow. That's gotta be <laughs> impressive. Right? Yeah. Uh, but so at this point for whatever okay so we skipped over uh julia is larry's second wife kirsty is larry's uh daughter from his first wife oddly enough for julia who does not seem to get along with anybody on the planet earth she really doesn't like kirsty yeah and yet for some reason larry sends kirsty to go check in on julia in the middle of the day because he's worried about julia because she's Mm. acting distant yeah kirsty who didn't want to go to the house in the first place didn't want to move into the house specifically said she got herself her own apartment when they moved to town and was looking for a job to avoid having to go to the house at all. Yeah. Hey, why don't you pop over right now for convenience? And talk to the person that you hate as much as she hates you. Yeah. Maybe you'll bond over something. It's a stretch. Yeah, Larry is not good at life. No. I don't think. Well, as it turns out. Well, this is why. This is why he ends up the way he ends up. Um, but Kirsty goes to the house, sees Julia bringing home another uh, potential victim, and uh, she busts in on the whole thing. The guy is being reduced to goo. Le- uh, uh, Frank has his means of regenerating himself, or after Julia bashes in the guy's heads, uh, he sticks his fingers in the back of their neck and just kind of slurps out the life, slurps the life out of them, mm-hmm. like audibly slurp like crazy straw sounds yes it's yeah. really unnerving and then they end up kind of like a melty puddle person thing yeah like, like wax grayish husk yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh this is when Kirsty is reintroduced to her uncle and we get the the uh the line that launched the career of Aphex twin come to daddy <laughs> Like, wouldn't the world have been po- all the poor without Aphex Twin? Yeah. Does you ever watch their videos? Oh yeah, they the did. Uh, they had a lot of great ones. Uh, they were. Uh, Chris Cunningham, I think, did some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Gondry might have done one I or think two. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, disturbing. Yeah, disturbing and amazing. Oh, oh god. Um, not Fincher. Um, although I think Fincher may have as well. But no, yeah. Uh, I have a bunch of. 
uh, I think it was Palm Pictures put out like 15, 20 years ago compilations. Of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, I got my old roommate the one that had like the Gondry, the Spike Jones, and one yeah. other person in that that group. Yeah, that was, collection, rather. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was a Gondry, Spike Jones, Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a Fincher. Romantic? Possibly, yeah. Um, but yeah, like uh, those things, like you would watch as different artists were on all of them. Like mm-hmm. Apex Twin was across them. Uh, Fat Boy Slim tended to pop mm-hmm. up across them. Yeah. Um, Bjork. Bjork. Yeah. Oh, Bjork. Anywho. Anyhow, so Kirsty manages to uh, overpower Frank by just sticking her hand in his guts and pulling things. Yeah. It's, you know what? It, I, I am squirming just thinking about it. People joke about the, you know, the whole meme of, you know, women's armor in fantasy. <laughs> but when you see that somebody with no skin, can you can just reach in and just start Ugh. knocking stuff out like a cat near a shelf. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, there's there's a point to that. Like, you need to protect that area, and, like, skin is your first line of defense. Yeah, let's not give him short shrift to skin. Yeah, <laughs> but also, based on the necks of everyone Frank's been killing, skin, not a good defense. No, 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 it's not, not the best thing. Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying is armor overall is probably best for sure. a razor situation. Oh, God. Yeah, or, you know, don't know Julia. Step one. Step one. Don't know Julia. <laughs> um, and so she manages to uh, steal the box away from Frank and accidentally, or not accidentally, she intentionally opens it. She just doesn't know what the box does. But right. then the Cenobites show up. Cenobite means a pr- uh, re- member of a religious order. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the novella, the order is named. It's called the Order of the Gash, which is one of the greatest slash worst puns mm-hmm. on the planet Earth. Yeah. Um, Pin. And Pinhead explains ever uh, explains everything that has to happen now. And what was kind of funny was that like part of what makes Pinhead the face of these uh, the this horror franchise, not just because he's the uh, so visually striking, because let's be real, the chatter is equally disturbing yeah. and uh, just not as many memorable lines well that's the thing because like original in the original script uh, and in the novella but also the actual shooting script the lines were spread out between all four of them mm-hmm. but because of the makeup effects on the chatterer and the butterball centibite they couldn't really hear or deliver anything and so their lines went to pinhead and so pinhead becomes even more of the fate the fate the, the lead figure gotcha. of the whole thing because the female Cenobite still has a bunch of lines yeah but she's still not as prominent as mm-hmm. uh, Pinhead is yeah and I wonder if some of her lines were also shifted or she didn't get as many given to her because of the makeup appliance on her neck mm. yeah and the concerns of if somehow this ever is shown on broadcast television uh, we can't show her at all so we her. have to lose those lines god you're right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, that's a good concern as well. Although I also, having seen the rest of the movie, wonder if that was even a thought that crossed his mind. No, probably not. No, Clive, Clive, Clive was correctly just like, I'm gonna make the best best movie I possibly can, and then we'll worry about everything afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he was right. This is not the kind of movie, nor the budget range, nor the studio that gets. 
broadcast TV. We don't worry about like whether or not yeah. this is going to be the movie of the week. Yeah, I don't think Roger Corman had a movie. And Roger Corman runs New World Pictures, who you know, did this. If I can't remember if we talked about that on air or not. Nope. Um, yeah, Roger Corman movies were not known for being shown on NBC, you know, Sunday night movie or whatnot. UHF stations, though. UHF stations, but even then, not a ton. He, uh, most of his stuff was, uh, once the 80s hit especially, it was just straight to video. Hmm. Um, I mean, it played theatrical, but like sure, sure. it was video store fair hmm. and then HBO circulation. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, even like Killer Clowns from Outer Space wasn't really being shown on UHF stations too was much. Was that Roger Corman? I'm pretty sure that was uh, that was a New World one. I know MGM has picked up distribution yeah. since. I mean, that was on that, that was a regular feature on HBO, though. But that's what I'm saying. Is HBO showed oh, okay, gotcha, the hell gotcha. out of yeah. of the of the New World stuff. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, Pinhead and Company explained to Kersey that you open the box. Doesn't matter that you didn't know what you were opening. You opened it. You broke it. You it's bought time it. Time to go, which is again the great sex metaphor. It doesn't matter that you didn't know that they had this thing. Mm. You did it, and now you've got it. Yeah, your sexual education growing up may not have taught you how to put a uh, condom on a banana. Mm-hmm. <coughs> You're in this or situation, a penis even right. <laughs> That would work so much better. It would make. I it have would, so many apologies to issue. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> but yeah, I um, did it the way they taught me. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. They, there's I just, don't know how you keep getting pregnant. Hmm. <laughs> I go to a house. Somebody's got a still life set up. I'm like, oh, well, the fruit bowl is out. Time to party. <laughs> so good. <laughs> but anyway, so Kirsty. Even at, like, I love how, like, this is going to be, like, our protagonist in about ten minutes. But even she is immediately going, hey, what if I give you Frank instead? Mm-hmm. Like, and again, Frank is a skinless monster who uh, deserves no sympathy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, this is our, this is going to be our hero. Yeah. It's just like, I'll give you somebody else. Yeah. I just don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until now, just been kind of a semi-distant, you know, I love uncomfortable teen. Yeah. yeah. Like, not snotty or anything, just no. not just really there. interesting, just a teenager. Yeah. And Ashley Lawrence was actually 16 yeah. during the filming of this movie. And playing, I'm assuming, 18 or 19 since she had her own apartment, or yeah. things are different in the UK. Or things are different in the UK, which this I mean, wouldn't have Brooklyn. mattered because this is filmed, in, this is all set in Brooklyn. But so, Kirsty races back. Uh, by this point, uh, Larry has been murdered. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Frank is wearing his skin and also wearing his hair like the worst wig ever. Like mm-hmm. it is greasy with blood, and you see like flaps of skin all on the hairline. I don't understand what the thinking is at this point. It's pretty obvious. Um, but they make sure to highlight that his, uh, after like a two or three minutes, him squishing around his eye, yeah. that his eye color has changed. In case you didn't know something was up, yeah, they are telling you, hey, <laughs> hey, guys, guys, I just, just real quick, there's something up. There's something up. Mm-hmm. And so something's wrong with Jack. Something's wrong with Larry. Um, 
Kirsty demands to see. So, Larry, Frank is Larry, tells Kirsty that he has killed Frank and he's up in the attic. Uh, also, oh, we're giving a short shrift. Uh, with uh, the skin on Frank, Julia finally gets the little touch of Frank that she's been waiting for, and it appears to have been worth every single person that she has murdered to get there. Mm-hmm. Julia's the worst. Yeah. But Claire Higgins is incredible. We completely ignored uh, what I think is the best acting in the entire film, which is uh, after Julia murders the first uh, bar guy, uh, she's cleaning herself up in the uh, the bathroom, and the camera is, in, is, is, is it positioned as if it is the mirror. And so Julia's looking directly at you, and uh, Claire Higgins goes through this like entire facial journey of emotions, mm-hmm. of all the things she's feeling, not the least of which she ends up on being excitement. Mm-hmm. Uh, her only real excitement, anytime she's having any sort of relationships with her actual husband, with even like flirting with these guys she's bringing back, yeah. revulsion. Yes. Exudes out of every pore. Yeah. Like this normal, like, you know. Cannot deal with it at yeah, all. Yeah, this well, probably going to be missionary yeah. mayonnaise, you know, like she's missionary just. Missionary mayonnaise? She just missionary looks mayonnaise. so bored with the entire, the concept of sex with any of oh these my men. god that is a phrase that is not going to leave me quickly <laughs> definitely not quickly enough missionary uh, man it is effective I hate well that. as a phrase not as I mean uh, not for her she's just not into it is what I'm saying and like her excitement in this scene that you mentioned is such a stark contrast to how she's been like to the point where it's almost like does anything turn her on because why is she oh oh it's this yeah it's it's gotta be this it's definitely Frank but also murder yeah maybe murder yeah Julia but so uh Kirsty demands to see the corpse of Frank because, well, Kirsty's got her own problems. Yeah. And uh, she gets up there and the Cenobites reappear and Pinhead is fucking with her. Yeah. Right out of the gate. Like, uh, he's never been on her side, but, like, he points to the, the corpse, which he knows for a fact is Larry. Right. And says, we want the man who did this. I think he was assuming she wouldn't recognize her dead father's corpse. He could be. Because Cenobites. Yeah. They see everything. Mm-hmm. Like, they know what it is. Yeah. But she thinks that, oh, no, my father did this, so he runs down to protect Dad because she did not pick up on yeah. the fact that Dad had this giant ring of blood around his hair and was acting kind of weird. In yeah. her defense... It's been a day. Somebody... And also, none of us have really experienced bumping into someone you know, but it's actually someone else wearing their skin. That's the kind of thing that doesn't occur to you. It's not one of the first yeah. three things that's gonna like, you know, maybe they've had a bad day. Maybe they haven't had their coffee yet. Maybe it's somebody else wearing their skin. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. roll. Remember, like, did you ever watch French? Uh, some. Season three uh, really dives headfirst into the parallel dimension story arc. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
the main character, Olivia Dunham, played by uh, Anna Torv, uh, she gets swapped with her evil parallel universe twin. Mm-hmm. And when it's finally like switched back, after, and like while she's been switched, the parallel universe twin and Joshua Jackson have been hooking up because he thinks it's just Olivia. Right. And uh, when they finally switch back, <laughs> get these borderline ridiculous sci-fi conversations. Like, how could you not know it wasn't me? And it's like, it's, it was you. What do you? Yeah. What do you mean? What, how am I supposed to be able to tell this? Yeah. You were, you were acting to just different. To, am I supposed to I just freak you were, out every time? She, say, she says, like, how did you not know that it was, like, that she was acting different? And he's like, I thought you were being, we were just happier because we were in a relationship. Oof. Oh. I know. Oh, that sucks. It's a legit rea- response, but yeah. it does suck. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's bad. But yeah, so Kirsty did not pick up on that. Yeah. It was, that it was Frank. Yeah, the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the fool, the fool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, she finally like looks into Frank's deep brown eyes and remembers that oh, my dad has baby blues. Mm-hmm. Uh oh. And then of course, then Frank gives it away by saying, "Come to Daddy again," and the Apex people just you know start cashing checks. Yeah. Uh, and then we get the once like uh, Frank knows that she knows. We get Andrew Robinson's fant- the first of two amazing ad libbed lines by Andrew Robinson. Enough of the cat. So much for the cat and mouse shit. Mm-hmm. I just love the resignation. It's like ugh. Or the relief, just yeah. finally. God damn, that was boring. Yeah, time to murder again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, we've been lingering on to when is everybody going to figure it out? But uh, I think we're right at the finale, so yeah. let's get this thing going. Yeah, which again, this movie's only 93 minutes, and there's mm-hmm. like no wasted time in this film. No. Everything's just going, and mm-hmm. it's fun and exciting. And then we get, ironically, we get more cat and mouse shit where Kirsty is running around and hiding and stuff and yeah. Larry has to find him. But eventually Larry or uh Frank Frank. Damn it. Frary. Frank. Frary. Lank. So Lank. Um no, Frank uh ends up stabbing and murdering Julia. Or at the very least that's what it appears to be. Uh he he goes after Kirsty but he winds up getting Julia. Yeah. And then he's like, well, while you're here, and then just jams his fingers and drains her to Grey Husk. Yeah. Again, eliminating who was, for a long stretch of the movie, our protagonist. Yes. And I I wouldn't go as far as to say unceremoniously, but definitely, like, it's abrupt. Like... It's abrupt, and it's moved on very fast. Yeah. Um, Which may be a flaw to the movie. We do see in about 10 minutes that Julia had climbed up the stairs and made it to the bed and reopened the box. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because she's got the chains all over herself when Kirsty grabs it. But before we get to that point, Frank reveals himself to the Cenobites and the Cenobites tear him apart. Yeah. It's great. Like, chains are coming out of mm-hmm. nowhere, grabbing every single part of Frank with the express purpose of pulling it apart from every other part of Frank. Imagine watching the end of The Hitcher mm. and saying, mm. there's got to be an easier way. Yeah. I'm Let's just, yeah, instead of just, like, instead of just halves and... Uh, let's pull let's every possible direction. 
it's like the the like the gins the Ronco yeah. to uh how you were doing it at home. Yeah. But so that ta- so then we're officially done with our main characters, Frank and Julia, and to the lesser extent that Larry was a main character as well. Mm-hmm. They are all dead. Yeah. And or re-dead. Yeah. <laughs> but definitely concluded in the film. Yes. But we still have about 15 minutes of film because Kirstie's got to get out of this fucking house. And, I mean, it's not that we didn't care about Kirstie. It's just that she really isn't a factor in this movie yeah, until She just this showed point. up to be somebody to escape. Otherwise, the box just sits there. Yeah. And so we get all of the Cenobites going after her in turn and uh, actually come to think of it it's the Cenobites chasing her because they show up and destroy if they showed up and just destroyed Frank because they caught up with him then we end the movie with everybody's dead and there were no good guys to get away there's nobody left to root for Mm. if there was anybody to root for well they could have just let Kirstie go but there, if you would if you removed Kirstie from the movie entirely, oh, okay, okay. you would have had a movie where you could have done yeah. the same morality play, but she's thrown in there so that the final act has somebody for us to actually root for. Which is kind of like uh, like I'm getting parallels from The Fly, mm-hmm. but it The Fly once again is just that much more artful because Gina Davis is the character we root for and she's been there right. the entire time. Yeah. Even though technically like I, st- I still have trouble identifying Brundlefly as the bad guy because it's not right. as small. But that said, like it's when you're in the final oh, yeah. act, you need some sympathy. You need something. Yeah. 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 And so yeah, cuz like you're definitely not rooting for Larry. No. Because he's just nitty. He's a putz. Yeah. It's like, you don't want anything bad to happen to Larry, but you're not going to care when it does. You're not invested because he doesn't seem all that invested in making a grander life either. No. It's not like he was presented as the super sweet husband of the year. He's just he was a guy. cookie. Yeah. <laughs> but he's just, he's just like the static version of, oh, this seems like a fine fella. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not particularly charming. Right. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. He's not... He's not Mr. Wow. Yeah. You could understand... Larry's are rarely, you know, Mr. Wow. Yeah. Except for Larry Fine. I would would do very bad things to Larry Fine. (laughs) Larry Sanders? No. All right. Gary Shambling, however. There you go. Yeah. But, um... So Kirsty is trying to get out of the house, and each Cenobite is going after her in turn. And this is the only like a time, kung fu fight, like a kung fu fight. Um, and this is the only time we, in the like the series that we ever see the box kind of used this way, where it will kind of click out of position, and then Kirsty can re can resolve the puzzle and send like the Cenobite in front of her back. And here we get in the like it really is Rubik the Amazing Cube because mm-hmm. every time she gets it to one side like color it does a thing that mm-hmm. saves her saves her from the Cenobite going after her and this is like it's great to like if you needed anything concrete about whether they thought that a it was it, this would be a franchise or b that pinhead was going to be the main character of the franchise this is the proof that they never thought that because pinhead is the first Cenobite taken out mm-hmm. uh like, 
not unceremoniously because he has a really good scream when he's being you know, yeah. zapped back but you would have thought he would have lasted longer yeah but he does, he does have that we have such sights to show you that will tear your soul apart well that was earlier I know but I'm just saying good lines it's so so good and great delivery ah Doug Bradley yep eight movies as Pinhead eight movies as Pinhead not including the Motorhead music video and the appearance on the MTV Movie Awards also true yep mm. Oh, I can't wait. We're definitely talking about the Motorhead video when we get to Hellraiser 3. Yeah, there's because, a... Actually, because... You know why? Clive Barker directed it. Oh, nice. Yeah, I found out that that out in the book, and I'm like, oh my god, that's the last thing he directed for, for Hellraiser. Not the last thing that he contributed to the series. No. Because he does have a very crucial uh, contribution to number four, but mm-hmm. we'll get to there when we yep. get there. But, yeah, he directed the Motorhead video. <laughs> Which is amazing, but um, Kirsty manages to get through, get all, send all the Cenobites back, including the engineer. And I love the bit where, like, the engineer, like this big hulking monster thing, she's like fighting with him for the puzzle box. She finally gets it back, gets it from him. I'm, I'm calling him him incident. And uh, Steve has arrived, and Steve is trying. Steve tries to help her with the box, and she just smacks him because, like, you idiot! I've been doing everything. Just leave me alone. Just let me do it yeah it is Steve great. does seem like if somebody was gonna have daddy issues and go after somebody like her father oh yeah Steve is pretty Steve bland. is young Larry yeah yeah uh they get out well you are just a little too useless a little too late oh kinda oh. yeah but definitely uh they get out of the house the house um, just evaporates. It just mm-hmm. sort of burns down of, yeah. of its own volition. And uh, then the uh, the homeless man that we've not mentioned at all, who has been recurring throughout the film, mm-hmm. who bears a striking resemblance to Alan Moore. Uh, yeah. Not or, just uh, because of the cricket eating. Yeah. Um, Alan but, Moore will eat your crickets. You have to be careful. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're high in the brain proteins mm-hmm. that give him all the details mm-hmm. to describe the length of grain in a comic panel he's a fella I do like his comics I like I like the final output um, could use a little less rape yeah I'm not saying he no goes, rape he goes I'm there saying. a lot but at least like it makes more sense in the story and or has more of an impact in the story which is like he's not Frank Miller I'm on saying it. he's not like he's not just well a woman is here so clearly she has yeah, to be raped yeah she's either gonna be raped or she's a hooker or ninja or, she might be a ninja we'll still probably do some of the other stuff yes yeah whereas you know Alan Moore actually makes characters right and then yeah with, oh, oh they, they, they yeah. get raped they yeah. get raped so, Alan Moore do not write my character Characters, my characters are my precious characters, and it is absolutely an abomination to do anything to another person's characters. Anyway, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> what I'm going to do here um, is uh, Nina Harker's been raped, but also, you know what? Let's just do Lost Girls, where we can have uh, a porno comic with, was it... Tinkerbell, Snow White, and... I've I've purposely never read it. Oh, I never read it, but I worked at the distributor when it was coming out, and there were questions like, oh, yeah, um, Alan Moore is taking three beloved uh, young girls from fiction that he did not create and putting them through basically a porno comic. Um, Cool. Because... 
a writer's creations are precious. Uh, he's a giant fucking hypocrite. That's what we're doing here. Don't. Okay, that's Patrick talking. Uh, I'm not going to say anything overtly derogatory to the magic user. So uh, that was all Patrick. We did. We do not script this. Uh, if anything has to happen, it should happen to <coughs> Patrick. I am right. Tom. The other guy talking is Patrick. I am Patrick, <laughs> and if Mr. Moore is listening and wants to cast a spell, uh, I know how you can be about deadlines, so I'm not going to hold my breath. Oh, man. Man. Look at the big swinging dick on Pat. Yeah. Pat ain't afraid of nothing. Let alone no Alan Moore. Not let alone no Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. So, our derelict homeless man, uh, Kirsty throws the box into one of the pyres that mm-hmm. was her home, was her father's home, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, throws the box into the, one of the fires. The homeless man picks, reaches into the fire, pulls the box out, of course is immolated, and from the flames emerges a dragon made of skeletons. Mm-hmm. And then it flies away. Yeah. And then That's everything... a different will, actor playing the dragon made of skeletons. Different actor playing dragon made of skeletons. Because the homeless man... Oh, uh, yeah. ...was played by none other than... Oh, I have no idea. Wasn't that Barker in there, too? No. What? I thought Clive Barker was the homeless guy. No. Wait. Uh, I kind of I always thought... That was his way of doing a cameo. I will check. It looked enough like him in the eyes, in especially in the pet shop when he's eating the crickets. <laughs> I was pretty sure that that was that was Barker there. I am going to challenge. All right, we will find out in just a moment. Yeah. But then, uh, as the uh, the skeleton dragon flies away, and Kirsty and Steve are left dumbfounded. Well, Kirsty is left dumbfounded. Steve is just dumb. Dumb. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the derelict was played by Frank Baker. Huh. Mm. He's Weird. apparently a different man. All right. Well, I <laughs> I have always found them to look a lot alike. I, I, I can see there. the eyes. I'm, I'm not saying I don't see like a the similarity nose too. to vibe. Like the, the In the pet shop but especially. Yeah. Okay, well, well, let me put it to you where I'm coming from. For the longest time, I thought it was Vincent Schiavelli. Fair. So I'm, I don't think I'm going to agree with the facial features of this man resembled Clive Parker. We see what we want to see. Exactly. That's the nature of fiction. I'm not disagreeing with that. Uh, but then everything pulls back, and this has all been another story. It pulls back until we zoom out from the circle in one of these sides of the box. And uh, we're back in the Turkish bazaar with the man who sold the box to to Frank, asking a new person, what is, ple- what is your pleasure, sir? Mm-hmm. And then credits. Yep. And more Christopher. We want more of that great Christopher Young music. That's the first Hellraiser movie. Yeah. Oh my god. Fucking Hellraiser, man. Yeah. So good. Resale value. Beyond, just oh, beyond. Oh yeah. Seen this plenty. I watch it like twice a year. Okay, I haven't seen it that plenty. Yeah. But I've definitely seen it more than a few times over the years. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Read the comics. Read, you know. Mm-hmm. We uh, are fans. Mm-hmm. Which is why we're doing this, as yeah. opposed to Amityville, which we are now. God, just why are we doing? Why were we doing it? Why are we doing Amityville? 
Because it seemed like the best idea for a long-running podcast. <sighs> you are smart that way. Yeah. But look, but, at what it, what, look at what you've done to us. Well, this look is why we're reduced. at Hellraiser now. This is the sins of our own decisions as to what we thought would be pleasurable. That's a good point. Which is, you know, in keeping with what Frank made. The, it's always a mistake or a thing you shouldn't assume that the thing you're into is going to be the exact same thing the other person's into. Yeah. This is why you should have discussions beforehand. Not necessarily the full, you know, uh, dom-sub NDA agreement from Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. But, you you can build the conversation conversation over time. You can say, hey, next time, try a little this. Um, Maybe take some of the hooks out of the dildo. Just not all, but like some. But yeah, you can work up like, hey, do you mind if we look at each other's search histories? <laughs> browse for anything we like, you yeah, know, we yeah, have in common. This is like, let's uh, start making our Venn diagram. Yeah. Ew. I don't want a Venn diagram with any of the Cenobites. No. No. But, so this is the first of 11 films. Mm-hmm. That means, okay, so three months of watching these, although I know we're uh, currently doing bi-weekly on the episodes, just to give ourselves a breather. Uh, I think when we hit that last Amityville wall, that also kind of took some wind out of our sails. But bare minimum three months until we check back in on the Amityville franchise. Well, there'll be at least ten more. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> we know that they're making some of they're them. They're always making them. The, the, the pandemic didn't slow them down. It sped it up. It's insane. But we don't have to think about it for a while. This we're, is true. We're, we in, can, we're in hell. We're in hell. We're in hell. Oh, sweet, sweet hell. Sweet, sweet hell. Well... Uh, until next time then get out and go see some sights if you want to interact with us online you can check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Amityville Show or you can send us an email at podcastamityville at gmail.com